0: Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the weekly podcast in which I ask my guests to choose their seven desert island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. I hope you're all well. Thank you for the lovely reviews you've been leaving this week. Someone described Desert Island Dishes as chocolate fondant in podcast form, which might just be the best thing anyone's ever said to me, and I'm thinking of getting it tattooed. What do you think? If you haven't already, then this is just a friendly reminder to click that five-star rating on iTunes and leave a review, which you never know, I may also end up getting tattooed. I was so excited to sit down with Felicity this week, I describe her as one of the biggest names in food writing, and I could see her immediately recoil at that because she's very modest, but it's true, and I stand by it. There's all sorts in this one, from dishwashers to chicken Kievs, melon ballers, eyeballs, and everything in between. Enjoy. My guest today is Felicity Cloak. Felicity is an award-winning freelance journalist and writer. You may know her from her infamous Guardian column, How to Make the Perfect, or perhaps from her column in The New Statesman, or perhaps from her many other writing features. She has written five books with more in the pipeline. Her writing and recipe testing is meticulous and has made Felicity one of the biggest names in food writing today, with her recipes being some of the most trustworthy around. She has been crowned the nation's taster-in-chief, And Jan Moyer says, she oozes trustworthiness the way a figgy pudding oozes spicy
1: fumes. (laughs) Welcome, Felicity. Very nice to be here. What an introduction. I didn't actually, I've not heard that quote before, so I'm delighted to get that tattooed on me.
0: There were quite a few different quotes that I could have chosen for that, but I think to be compared to a figgy pudding is quite something.
1: The highest of accolades.
0: (laughs) And Felicity, for someone who writes as much as you do, and you may well be relieved to hear this, but I could find out really very little about you and your childhood by having a real nose online. I did manage to find out that you grew up in Hertfordshire, and I did gather from one of your books that you have a brother. I know that because you referenced his ability to spot the leaking chicken Kiev and swiftly pass it on to you. So I'm excited to talk about the first Desert Island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood.
1: You just stole my thunder because it oh. is the chicken Kiev. I'm afraid. That's a great answer. It's. Just, I mean, I also think it's not only. I, I have a sister as well, but she is not. Um, she's not a chicken Kiev thief. Okay. So, um, <laughs> she doesn't. She doesn't get publicly shamed in my books. But I think it's because I grew up in the 80s and chicken Kiev. I know it's a sort of it's a 70s dish, but you know, in Hertfordshire, we were perhaps a little bit behind the times, and that was the height of. It was a real treat dish for us, and. You know, I'm not saying that my mum went out and made them. She worked. Um, they came from the supermarket. They yeah. were delicious. I'm not going to apologise for that. I do make them actually now and they are as delicious, but I still have a soft spot for those supermarket versions. Yeah, I think they're one of those things where there is no shame in buying it. Yeah, well, I look at them and I think, oh, sometimes if I see them reduced, I buy them. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just they, we would have them as a treat maybe on a Friday night and they would be oven-baked. And my brother, older than me, taller, would be in charge of getting them out of the oven. (laughs) And he just knew when the garlic butter had leaked out, because it's always one that would come out. And he just had a sixth sense. You'd think that they would look different. They didn't to me. But he (laughs) would, you know, and I wouldn't know until I cut into it. So disappointing. But he recently sent me a picture and he'd done it to his own kids. (laughs) And I was just oh my god perpetuating this resentment. <laughs> so Yeah, the cheese. Ve- yeah, mashed potato peas, classic. He's which. very serious about his cheese.
0: <laughs> and I I read in one of your recipes that, that there are sort of different techniques to to stop the butter oozing out. And you say that one of the best ways is to wrap it in cling film, I think?
1: Yeah, so you can do all sorts of slightly sinister stuff with meat glue. Okay. And Wait, I, what? Yeah. Like an actual glue for meat? Yes, it's sort of, I think it's an enzyme and it fuses the meat together. Okay. I don't really <laughs> like, to, I don't object to that. It's not dangerous, but it's not something that I really want to keep in my kitchen. And I suspect that lots of your listeners probably won't have it to hand either. And it's actually as easy, I think, because I did try the meat glue. I bought some. It's as easy to free. So you wrap it in cling film, so it's very tight, and then you freeze it—not all the way through, but just so the outside freezes, and that sort of fuses it together. So it's a much easier way, and there's no there's no leakage. That's a top. No tip. leakage at all.
0: <laughs> I also read that another one of your earliest food memories was gnawing on a plastic-wrapped Stilton <laughs> that you grabbed off the supermarket <laughs> shelf when you were in a buggy. Which, I mean, that must have been a shock.
1: <laughs> it's no well. The thing is, it's such an early food memory that I would think it was false, except that A, no one else talks about it in my family, so I remember it. <laughs> and b, I can it's a sort of real visceral memory. I can really, really remember the sensation of the the, the blue cheese through the clean film. And I liked blue cheese from a really early oh, did you? age. Yeah, I've always, I remember people saying, oh, you won't like that when you had rock four on a Christmas cheese board. I loved it. And I was actually quite, I was quite a fussy eater as a child. But no, blue cheese, I've always loved it. And nowadays I do tend to eat it without the the plastic wrap. Yes. It didn't put me off.
0: That's (laughs) saying something, isn't it? I hope my mum bought it afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) You say you sort of accidentally got into food writing. You studied English at Oxford and after that went into publishing. But you realised very quickly that that wasn't for you. Was that a case of realising that you did actually really want to write yourself rather than commissioning others?
1: Yeah, I mean, I never got to the grand stage of commissioning anyone. Okay. (laughs) Um, I don't want anyone that worked with me in that time to to fool about laughing. Um, I I realized that I really wanted to write and there wasn't that much scope for it. Um, Obviously, publishing other people's writing. So I got out of that quite quickly and um, yeah, fell into food because I was interested in it. And it just seemed a really exciting thing to be part of because... Food writing encompasses so many different things. You know, there's travel, there's history, there's sort of scientifically based things, which I'm less good at, um, but I find interesting. It's just such a broad range. Everyone has to eat.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Um, And where did you begin? Because what did it look like from when you decided that you wanted to
1: write about food to actually going about writing about food? Um, Where did I begin? I'm trying to think of the first thing I wrote that was ever published. I went and did lots of work experience at food magazines and I remember being so excited because I think Waitrose magazine got me to write a quiz question (laughs) um, and I can still remember it. It was was, um, something about which fruit has its seeds on the outside or something in strawberry. It wasn't that. Okay. (laughs) Um, But I I was so delighted to see it in print. It was just, oh, it was such a thrill. Um, and now I just feel quite, I used to buy everything because then I went and did lots of other, I worked for magazines for a bit and then I got into newspapers, um, when I went freelance and I used to go and buy every single paper, not every single copy of the yeah. paper, but every single newspaper that I was in. And now. I mean, I still get did... excited if I see it, but I'm, I'm less. Well, you know, yeah, if you did that, you might like literally, your flat would just, yes. you'd be like one of those hoarders on TV. Well, I think I already look like a hoarder. So um, <laughs> I think I should probably. <laughs> anyway, I do sometimes. If I've got a nice sort of glossy feature, I do go and buy it. Yeah,
0: it's very important mm. to do that, I think.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about the second Desert Island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. So I think it was probably apple crumble, which Ooh. is... Um, It's an unexciting dish, but it's a profoundly satisfying one. Um, I absolutely love crumble and I don't think that I ever got it at home. I remember it being very sort of sandy and not like the ones we used to get at school and which was sort of big craggy lump. The one that I made at home was probably quite sandy and fine and it was still delicious, but it wasn't a patch on the one we got at school that was... Big craggy rocks of crumble on top and slightly doughy beneath. Mm. And so delicious. Uh, just amazing. But I still loved it. I love any combination of butter and sugar to yeah. be honest. and then I would also have made the bird's custard that is still my absolute favorite accompaniment. Oh, to really, British puddings. Okay. I do not get the the denigration of bird's custard, which is basically just a cornflower thickened sauce. Everyone's fine about, say, bechamel or any kind of white sauce but custard people are very snooty about it like egg custard is necessarily superior and i love a creme brulee and a creme caramel etc etc but there's a place they're too rich i think for, for especially british puddings you don't want that kind of base i like a custard i'll be honest i like a custard that you can drink okay and <laughs> even i can't put away that much egg well yeah me. so yeah but yeah you're right it's the um
0: the doughy squidgy bit touching the fruit isn't it so, so good delicious do you think it's possible to make a bad crumble
1: no I don't to be honest I mean having made a few bad crumbles in my <laughs> early years <laughs> still I edible. still enjoyed <laughs> them but I realized that the secret um I think I took it from Nigella's how to eat was to fr- to chill or freeze the mixture before you um put it in the on the fruit so it sort of comes together And also to get some liquid in there, like a little bit of water or something, which is, I'm sure, what they did at school. And then that helps it clump together. Mm,
0: Interesting Mm. that you um, hark back to your school version because that's quite rare,
1: isn't it? I (laughs) I have to say that some of the food at school was very, very bad. And I flirted with being vegetarian at school. For that reason, I mean, I say vegetarian. We still used to go to McDonald's, um, <laughs> but uh, so the puddings were excellent. Mm. And that they did a lot of, you know, stuff like cottage pie and stuff was was great. It was just there was a lot of potato smiley faces, which, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, which I've really gone off in yeah, recent. You can only <laughs> have recently. So many. I can still, I can still have a potato waffle, but a smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> so let's
0: talk a bit about the Guardian column, "How to Make the Perfect." You started it in 2010. I mean, getting a column from the get-go is pretty impressive. Has it been the same format ever since you started it? How did that come about?
1: The Guardian column came about. I had actually been writing for them, um, doing another column, which was sort of food-related. It was for their food section of the website, but it was on Modern Manners, so it was sort of a jokey thing about, you know, what to bring to a dinner party or something like that. And then this one started, it actually started, if you go right back, and I've done it recently, and it, you know, it's about fifteen pages of columns. So I wouldn't advise it. Trust me on this. If you go right back, it started as a column about food myths. So I think the first one was whether you should wash mushrooms, or whether it's true that they became waterlogged. Whether you should seal steak, and then we did one about whether you should um, how best to cook sausages. Which basically was just an excuse for me to make loads of jokes about Ainsley Harriet and pricks with forks. Oh, <laughs> um, but it went it went down really well online because it turns out British people really feel passionately about sausages; they mm. want to talk about it. So the next week we did mash, and that went crazy because we love mash even more than we like sausages. And so I think I was away at the time, and I was just like kept getting these emails from my editor going you know, there are 600 comments on this, which was not my usual. And so then we decided to sort of make it it evolved into how to make the perfect from that. And then a few months later, they decided it was doing so well, they put it in the paper. So initially it was just online. And I still remember the first day it was in the paper and it had my scone at that point, I took all the photos. My scum was on the masthead of the Guardian. Oh, my goodness! And I was so excited. And I was actually working at the Metro at the time, um, <laughs> so in the same building as the Evening Standard and the Daily Mail and things. It is quite hard to get a copy of the Guardian. Oh, yeah, there, I took <laughs> <laughs> so, hunting high and low for this. And I definitely bought that and kept that. Oh, my so god, exciting. that's
0: so exciting! It was. And I'm sure everyone listening has read your column, although excitingly, there are people listening all over the world. So just in case anyone isn't familiar, give us the
1: column in a nutshell. So I'll take a classic dish, they say it's gone, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a British dish. It can be um, a ragu bolognese or a uh, chicken korma or something, something from anywhere, but something that's classic and that people will be familiar with. And then I'll try and find five or six different recipes for that dish that have something significantly different about them. So, for example, with a scone, what kind of flour you use or what kind of fat, how you cook it. And then I will cook all of those different dishes and then I'll see what works and what doesn't. And I'll sort of magpie like take elements from all of them to make a perfect recipe. But why I think the column works is that I also talk about the things that I've done so if you don't happen to agree with my taste because everyone's taste is different obviously you can say well actually I think I would prefer brown sugar in my scone or something I'm going to give that a try because that's what Celia Smith for example does I think it just gives people options yeah it's It's just a nice overview for people basically yeah it's so clever because you're providing them with sort of a
0: definitive recipe but Mm. then as you say you also give options and you're sort of talking through what other people have done so you can you can make a decision from there and in effect, you're doing all the legwork for people because, I mean, it's laborious for each column. It's not for the faint-hearted and it's definitely not half-hearted. Did you know what you were taking on when you sort of decided to do this? Because it's a lot more work than just a standard recipe
1: column. No, I did not know what I was taking <laughs> on. I don't regret it, but it is such a lot of work. And there have been weeks where I have just been sent almost mad by the shopping. And like, people say, why don't you get your shopping delivered? But I'm rarely that far ahead. Yeah. And then quite often you need things from different places. And if they do one of those substitutions, that'd be a nightmare. And so, and so, especially if I'm doing a dish with, um, say if I'm doing pad thai or something like that, I will end up cycling around all the Thai supermarkets in East London or, you know, wherever trying to find specific ingredients. And it can take a day just to do the shopping. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and then there's all of the cooking and the washing up. And the, that's before you've even started writing. So yeah, the it, washing up is the yeah. killer, isn't well, it? When I got my dishwasher, it's a very small dishwasher because my kitchen, as you will confirm, is tiny. But the dishwasher was a really happy day. Yeah, it, it's still a game makes changer. Me, it still makes me really happy when I put it on.
0: And we live in a world of countless recipes. But it has to be said that they don't all work, do they? So I imagine a lot of the time you're trying to cut through personal preference and taste. But I can also imagine that sometimes there are recipes that just don't turn out as they should. Is that something that you encounter more than you probably should?
1: I think I've got quite good at looking at recipes and knowing which ones are going to work. I mean, there are some that if it's really unusual, I try it anyway to see because, you know, they've written the recipe. Yeah. So they presumably know better than me sometimes I'm surprised, sometimes I'm infuriated. Um, But you sort of get to know who to trust. And that's why I think um, people say, oh, you know, recipes online, etc, etc, you worried about how they'll affect cookbooks. And I don't think so, because you know, with a cookbook that everything's been tested, and people have invested in this recipe. Whereas something online, you know, lots of them work, but many, many of them don't. And it's just, you, you know, if you spend money on ingredients, you spend your time. You've got hungry people waiting for dinner. You just want to be able to trust, trust the recipe. So, yeah, there is nothing more annoying than following a recipe and it not working. Exactly. So yeah, I I keep I keep buying books. Let's move
0: on to the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten.
1: This was this <laughs> is such a hard question because I sort of was flicking through the rolodex of my memory, thinking. Was it this? Was it that? It, it's so difficult, but I, I, the dish that I can think of that gave me the most joy, mm. which I suppose is maybe the best dish you've ever eaten, because food should be about pleasure, and it makes it sound really fancy, um, which generally I'm not, but for <laughs> my 30th birthday, my then-boyfriend took me to, for a surprise, to Heston Blumenthal's dinner um, at the Mandarin Oriental, and I had the meat fruit, which for anyone who hasn't seen it, I would encourage you to have a look up online. It's the most delightful thing. It looks like a little satsuma, exactly like a little satsuma on a plate with complete with a sprig and a leaf and et cetera. And it's actually a chicken liver parfait and it's such a delicious chicken liver parfait. And then the outer skin is like an orange jelly. Ooh. But you know, I've eaten lots of delicious parfaits and this, that and the other in my time. It was just so fun. And you know, the rest of the meal was a bit forgettable to be honest, but that, Dish, and I think because it was my birthday and it was a surprise, and oh, it was just. And I think back on it, I still smile, and I've got photos of me looking like a Cheshire cat with that. <laughs> so, yeah, that's probably the best dish, just for the sheer pleasure it oh, gave me. That sounds amazing, and also really nice to hear
0: because you sometimes wonder with a dish like that that has become so famous, is it going to live up to the hype? So it's really nice to hear that it, it
1: totally did. Because I mean, p- look at pictures, but they cannot do justice to looking at this thing in front of you and knowing it's not a satsuma, but. It really does it?
0: like oh, so clever <laughs> and so to counterbalance that question I'm going to ask you about a dare that I read about where you ate an eyeball do you want to tell us
1: a bit about oh. that? <laughs> <laughs> not the best dish I've ever eaten it wasn't really a dish so um a few years ago I went it's probably around the same time I went to do a pig in a it was I think it was called pig in a day and it was we went to a farm in Suffolk and we went a pig farm free range pig farm And we had a talk from the farmers and we sort of went round, looked at the pigs in their fields, the piglets, super cute. Obviously, being food writers, we went went and butchered a pig. Some people will still find that weird, but that's what we did. And we were making, it was sort of concentrating on eating the more unusual bits. So, you know, someone, a Hungarian girl, cooked some brains with paprika, which was really super delicious really um yeah and I, I don't think I'd had brains before and actually um I'm not a massive offal fan but these were really nice they're very creamy and they're not awfully at all they're, they're lovely I haven't cooked them myself but I totally would yeah anyway and so there was that and we made some um more spanish black pudding with blood and so on and then there was the eyeballs that were sitting there and had very blue eyes oh no and um this guy this younger guy he said oh does it you know can you eat the eyeballs and no one happened to know whether you could eat the eyeballs i don't know if anyone googled it but anyway he said that he was going to cook up these eyeballs obviously there were two of them and i did not volunteer i will point out my friend who i had taken along as her birthday present which might make both of us sound weird but anyway. she said she pointed out that in my guardian sort of author bio it says i don't know if they've changed it now it said at the time certainly she likes to think she would try anything once but then no one's offered her an eyeball yet oh somehow she remembered this and so she was like you have to eat it my problem wasn't so much with the eyeball it was the fact that no one had a recipe for the eyeball so basically we were winging it if i'd gone to somewhere and they'd said this is the traditional way that we eat eyeball, yeah. I certainly would have had fewer qualms about trying it. As it was, they did it in this sort of, um, they battered it and fried oh, it. okay. So it looked nice. It looked like a little sort of arancini type yeah. <laughs> thing. And actually the mind plays such strange tricks that as I was lifting it to my mouth, I could see what I thought was sort of um, blue cheese in it. But as I put it in my mouth, I realized it was the people.
0: <laughs> Sorry, oh, everyone. My Sorry, goodness. Sorry, I hope no
1: one's eating. It was it was just very chewy and salty, and I wouldn't particularly recommend it. But it wasn't, you know, it was edible.
0: And the silver lining is, you'd
1: be great on "I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here." That's true. That would be yes. easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, that that would be that would be fine. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be rushing to repeat the eyeball otherwise. Let's talk a little bit about your cookbook collection because
0: <laughs> how many do you think you have? <sighs>
1: I don't know because I am not good with numbers, but I have probably about, uh, about as you say, like fifteen feet of cookbooks in yeah. the hall, <laughs> um, and more. They are taking over periodically. as a crash as a pile falls over, um, and because I use them for the column, it's really hard to. I occasionally you get them, and I think this is just. This is actually not. I'm never going to put something from this in the column, but that really happens because you just don't know. You know, you get a Coca Cola cookbook. I don't really like Coca Cola, but you think, well, wow, there's that classic uh, ham and Coke recipe, oh, yeah. et cetera, So I want to hang on to that. Um, and yeah. yeah, basically, I need a whole library. I'd say you've got upwards of 2,000. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. Next time I move house, which I'm dreading, um, I might actually count them.
0: Oh my goodness, yes, you must. Yeah. And do you have writers or books that you seem to turn to more than others that you sort of trust as a really sturdy starting point?
1: Yes, yeah. so there was a point where my love of the prawn cocktail years, which is Simon Hopkinson and Lindsay Barham, was getting out of control. <laughs> and it's such a good book. If you don't know, it, it's a book, it's sort of a... Um, it's a book of the 20th century in British food. And it does have stuff like sort of deviled kidneys and brown winter soup and stuff. But it's also, you know, it takes in the 60s sort of Italian food revolution. So it's got like ragu bolognese, it's got black forest Gatto, steak diane, all sorts. And just all the stuff that was trendy, it definitely got chicken Kiev, all the stuff that was trendy throughout the 20th century. And all of the recipes, um, actually within, with the exception of the Black Forest Gatto, which I made twice and didn't, the cake didn't work out for me for some reason. Oh. The rest was delicious. Everything else in there is not only works, but is entirely allied with my taste buds. Okay. Um, and everything I'm just always really pleased when I can make something from it because they always, with that exception, turn out brilliantly. But there, there are a, a staple of people that I know they work. And they're interesting as well. There's some people that I've got where I know they'll work, but they're not necessarily... Their tastes and my tastes aren't that similar. So things tend to be a little bit underpowered or whatever. But I've I've got my my favourites, my A-team.
0: Okay, and, and I know, obviously, you're going to be reluctant to name names. But on the flip side of that, are there some, you know, big-named writers that you actually kind of avoid, like The Plague?
1: Yes, there are some <laughs> that I... I don't, I just wonder whether all of their recipes have been thoroughly tested because sometimes you can make them and even taking into account different ovens and being charitable, there's just no way that that can have worked out. And that annoys me just because if people have spent money, then. They And then people, I think people just worry that they think it's them. You just assume that it, it's you that's made the
0: mistake. Especially if you're a novice and you're, mm. you don't have much confidence in the kitchen. It's really
1: unfair. Exactly. And most people aren't making five different versions of the same dish in yeah. a day. So they will not know that it's not their fault. So yeah. um, it's, it, it's, it's rare, but there are a few that I'm a little bit wary of.
0: And you kind of do hope that whenever people are writing recipes, they're doing it with the reader in mind and trying to create this brilliant recipe that works. But even if they don't do that, you now have this sort of huge reputation. Do you think possibly they fear having their recipe tested by you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I very much doubt it. I always, they might think, gosh, she can't cook. Because I don't have any cooking qualifications at all. Nor does Nigella, I would point out. But I don't. I hope that they don't. I always try and be fair to people. And yeah, you're um, never, you're never mean. Yeah. So I do. Yeah, I do. Sometimes worry that people might be a bit angry because you know sometimes with chef recipes, they're not really made to be made in a home kitchen, but then they put them in a book. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I think I'm a pretty decent cook by now. So anyway, no, I try, I try to be fair and not anger anyone. But I'm also honest. You know, I don't say things don't work. Well, I put the pictures online so you can see whether they work yeah.
0: or not. <laughs> We're on
1: to the fourth Desert Island dish, and that's your favourite sandwich. Again, a hard one because I do like sandwiches. And because I work from home a lot, I don't actually eat a lot of sandwiches because there's always leftovers or something. You know, it's, um, a sandwich is actually a bit of a treat for me. The best sandwich I ever had was on... I think the 1st of January this year oh. and it was the hot smoked salmon sandwich. I think there might have been cucumber in there, but who cares, frankly, hot smoked salmon sandwich from the Oban seafood hut on the West coast of Scotland. Oh. And my friend had told me, go for the, the salmon one. You won't regret it because they had crab, they had all, oh, it's all local stuff and the salmon came from their own smoke house, cetera. And just a little hut on the pier where the ferries go to the islands. And I ate it on the train back to Glasgow and which is quite a long and very scenic journey. And I eked it out for about an hour because it was so good that actually I didn't want it to end. Oh. oh my God. If I had bought if I'd known I would have bought two and eaten both of them because they were just heartbreakingly delicious. Oh and I'm not God. exaggerating, I'm feeling emotional. Yeah. Um but <laughs> tears have come into it, your eyes. It was such a good sandwich. <laughs> but otherwise I think that probably a um No, um, I really like a cheese sandwich and probably like either cheese and Marmite, cheese and pickle or guilty pleasure, those cheese and onion sandwiches that you get from quite sort of cheap sandwich places. I was looking for them recently and you do not get them at even somewhere like Pret-a-Manger. No, you don't. I used to at university when I was revising for my finals, I used to really like the Boots Shapers cheese nuggets (laughs)
0: <laughs> I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna say something about Oxford because they have amazing sandwich shops yeah. at Oxford. But well, no, exactly. The boot shaper sandwich. No, they just <laughs> have
1: amazing sandwich shops, and sometimes <laughs> we used to go and eat like focaccia with aubergines and mozzarella and pesto, and think we were the most sophisticated people ever. But sometimes I'd go to Boots and get the boot shaper yeah.
0: <laughs> sandwich. That's the only thing that we'll do. It
1: was yeah. It, I really fond memories of that.
0: I know you say that it's really hard to study English at Oxford and not dream of writing a
1: novel but do you think that's something that you will explore? I w- I, I'm I so in love with the idea of writing a novel whether I could ever do so I don't I've just never tried it so yeah, um, there'd be less washing up there would be a lot less washing up but also there'd be um maybe I'd lose a lot of weight <laughs> which I don't know helpful um but i i just that would be so fun to get into another world but i fear it probably would contain quite a lot of food yeah but there's you could definitely combine the two that's true yeah a gastronomic novel yeah um yeah i i would like to i'd you know i'd have have fewer cookbooks less washing up seems like a win-win yeah how exciting so you've done some very cool things you've
0: published you've just published your fifth book you've been a guest judge on the great british menu which is very cool and four of your books have taken the perfect format, with the latest one called Completely Perfect. As a self-confessed perfectionist, has the word perfect put any additional pressure on you?
1: <laughs> Did I have, I said that I'm a perfectionist? Yes. That's a fib. Oh. Um, sorry, everyone. <laughs> Do you buy the book, it is perfect. No, with the, I have to say that I'm a, I'm, I am a perfectionist in terms of taste. I'm okay. not, I'm only laughing because in terms of things like presentation... I am quite slapdash I'm just impatient and I did a friend's wedding cake this weekend and I was laughing to myself because I I you have to decorate them at the last minute yes and I was making these tiny rabbits to go onto it and I was sort of shoving the ears <laughs> in. they actually did look quite good um I think everyone said they looked. <laughs> okay, I think okay. they look good but I was just like why did you ask me to decorate it you should have got someone artistic and you know they hate to do it and do you think tasted it is the carrot cake it's been completely perfect it is a great recipe um my sugar work maybe needs something to be desired <laughs> but um yeah perfection i do feel in terms of taste if people come round i want the thing to be i want them to, it to taste great do you think maybe meticulous is a better word than perfectionist possibly a uh, perfectionist gives them um, the impression that you might come and
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: get some things that look like Heston Blumenthal made them which is not the case
0: And with the other book the A to Z of eating did you feel a sort of sense of freedom when writing that because the recipes in that are quite adventurous some of them and your perfect column as we've already said it sort of it tends to focus on the classics
1: yeah it was really nice to do stuff like Yeah, when you're greedy and you think a lot about food, things that pop in, like, why has no one made a Marmite donut? Like, uh, not a sweet donut, it's got cheese um, instead of jam, sort of molten cheese, like tiny donuts. And I was like, (laughs) why has no one done this before? And I thought about it and I hardly dared Google it because I thought someone will have done it. Never seen anyone else do it. And there's not not a good reason for that. If you like Marmite, they're delicious. Um, So that was really fun, just feeling that I could play around with whatever I wanted Wanted to do. Um, and some of them are a bit, there's a recipe for, um, soy braised pig's tails in there, which are so lovely. Like, you know, people eat oxtail and it's delicious. Pig's tails are actually more delicious because, um, they've got that lovely piggy flavor, but that's probably not for everyone that one, but there's lots of, lots of stuff in there that's just a little bit. There's a blue cheese cheesecake as well. Ooh. Just, you know, playing around with stuff. There's some really great onion rings. The salad's in there as well, lest it all sound like it's really unhealthy. Um, But it was really fun. Yeah, it's it's a really fun book to read.
0: And in your latest book, there's a really lovely quote, which I'm going to read now. It says, few things in life are more certain than the fact that when sous vide machines have gone the way of the melon baller and spiralizers a two for a quid at car boot sale, we'll all still be enjoying crumble and custard. And that's really lovely because that is kind of the ethos behind the Guardian column, isn't it? Why it's so important to focus on the classics.
1: Yeah, I think that, I mean, I've been rereading Nigella's first book recently. And she talks about how important it is that now we're always in a rush to make the next new sort of trendy recipe. And actually, it's useful to know how to make the recipes that we want to come back to. Yeah. And to really know how to make them. And I think that stuff like crumble and custard and a bolognese and um, even stuff as basic as scrambled eggs. Yeah. You know, you should know how to make those things if you like them. Yeah. And, and a white sauce. Yeah. All of those basics of cookery that I don't know, you know, our grandmothers, most of them, and I know that not everyone has a grandmother that's a good cook. In fact, I don't believe that either of mine were particularly great cooks. But, you know, your grandmother would have known instinctively how to make those things, even if she didn't execute (laughs) them that well. And so that's what the column is for, like the building blocks of, you know, having a really great tomato sauce or something like that. Just, you know, all the things that you should know how to cook. Yeah, that's very wise. I'm with you on everything. We're on to the fifth Desert Island dish, and
0: that's the dish you eat the most often.
1: (laughs) Probably aside from something like buttered toast. And um, I do eat a lot of stuff on toast because everything's better on toast yeah probably the dish I eat the single dish I eat most often and this is hard just because I spend so much time testing recipes that I rarely relatively rarely get to cook you know something repeatedly but there's nothing more comforting for me than a big bowl of dal I just love it especially on a Sunday night you don't really have to do much prep for it and it's just like a big sort of velvety hug and that was some slightly buttery rice is delicious and it never fails to go down well you can make it spicy or not spicy as you like it's just lovely it's sort of one step up for me from beans on toast yeah
0: (laughs) I think it's so great because as you said you're not a trained cook and yet over the years I feel like through your column you've kind of taken yourself on like a doctorate in food does it kind of feel like that
1: it yeah it does feel strange when I think that I mean it's such a luxury to be able to teach yourself to make all of these different dishes and people at work yeah, yeah and, and to be paid great riches for it. <laughs> um, no, to call it work is just, you know, sometimes I, if I look at the mountain washing up and feel cross, I reflect what my friends are doing at that exact moment at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And I think, Oh, actually these, you know, it's not that bad. Um, but it is amazing. And it's amazing how the different techniques feed into one another. And you, you sort of learn things that hold true across different cuisines and different dishes. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a great grounding. Yeah, it also makes you incredibly fussy when you go to restaurants. Yes, I, I can I go imagine. to people's houses, I am not fussy at all. I'm just delighted someone else cooks. If I am paying for the privilege, then I can be quite fussy.
0: And And like you say, lots of the things you've done, I've heard you say many times that it's a tough gig, but someone has to do it. And I particularly felt like that over the summer, which saw you head off to France in search of the perfect croissant. Is that for an upcoming book?
1: It is, yes. Um, I'm currently in the midst of writing a book about, it's a sort of travelogue, so it's a bit of departure, but it's cycling around France. And like the actual Tour de France, it's 21 stages. But (laughs) in this case, the stages are based around classic dishes, so Berthe Bourguignon and Quiche Lorraine and Moule Marinière and lots of delicious stuff. And to try and counteract all of this, I did it by bike. And I ate a lot of croissants along the way and consider myself a bit of a croissant connoisseur. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I had to say that the quality of croissant in France are still unsurprisingly a lot better than in the UK. Yeah, I can imagine the quality of croissant in Paris is just beyond.
0: It's very impressive that you did all of that cycling.
1: Well, you know, you just have to, once you get on, it's not like running once you start. You just yeah. have to put your legs round and round, don't you, so.
0: Well, I don't know. I feel like you're sort of downplaying it there. But I think that's very impressive. How far did you actually end up I haven't. I haven't added it know. up yet. Oh I'm actually God, you need bit, to and, do that. I
1: know, I'm saving it. That'll be it. the first thing I did. So well, I, I, I know, I'm sort of saving it because it's going to be on the last page of the book. Oh, it's okay. going to be all the stats with the croissant and the the kilometers and stuff but I think it's gonna be several that's thousand a, that's kilometers like a you've done there yeah <laughs> find out
0: <laughs> you have a book called the perfect host so I'm interested in your next desert island dish and that's the sixth desert island dish it's your go-to dinner party dish
1: now dinner parties and people that have actually been to dinner parties with me may laugh at this but that's only because I tend to set them five different think you know iterations of the same dish yes and make them score them before we actually that sounds to, fun eat, to drink like come dine with me it is it is quite fun but the more wine that gets drunk the more the comments become outlandish and then the next day i'm like how do i make sense of this but in general i if i'm cooking just for the sheer pleasure of cooking for people then the watchword is just prep ahead as far as possible um because even even if i've done that it often ends up being a bit of a rush to get things to the table you know while also ensuring everyone's got a drink and everyone's happy and blah, blah, blah. Um, and the dog's not harassing anyone's coat. And <laughs> so something like a, um, something that reheats, you know, improves with age, something like a beef stew and dumplings or a chili con carne or um, a ragu, anything like that that can be made entirely in advance and then you can just serve it like a beef stew. You can serve it with mash, which is a little bit of work on the day. If you do dumplings, then all you have to do on the day is maybe some green veg. Perfect or a salad, so anything like that is ideal. And then, actually, my favourite dinner party pudding, and it has been for about twenty since I started giving dinner parties, so uh, like fifteen years, is one from the Ivy cookbook that I had recently um, at one of the, the Ivy in Edinburgh, and I was reminded how good it is. What is to revive it? it? It is so simple. So you buy those iced berries, you know that you get at the supermarket, so yeah, it's frozen berries. They call it iced berries. Frozen berries in the supermarket. Keep them in the freezer until you need it. You also, then you make a white chocolate sauce with milky, well, I use milky bar because I'm secretly quite addicted to yeah. milky bar. <laughs> I don't allow myself to buy it except for this purpose. I always buy extra just to it's get It's so good. And you just melt, melt some of that in some cream. And then you put the ber- frozen berries on plates and then people pour over this hot sauce and it sets like ice magic, if anyone remembers that from yes. the 80s. Everyone, it has that pleasure thing, like the, the meat fruit. It has that sort of pleasure principle. Everyone's like, oh, wow, this is so cool also tastes great and it's super easy and pretty cheap too. So also ideal. I wish i thought of it. That. That's a really great
0: one. Hmm. Dinner parties at yours sound pretty good. <laughs> On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook hall of fame. What is your most treasured cookbook?
1: Oh, well, I've already mentioned the prawn cocktail years, yeah. but I think the one I'd have to, if I was going to take one book away with me to this delicious desert island. It had to be Nigel Slater's Real Food, Ooh. which it probably has featured before. But it is just, it's the book that got me into not only cooking, but also sort of food, writing. The idea of food writing. Because I remember someone gave it to my parents when it came out in the 90s. And I just remember we had Delia and we had the, the book, the, the dairy book of household cookery that you bought from the milkman. And we had Mrs. Beaton and a few sort of like nouvelle cuisine, sort of 80s, 90s chefs. But this was the first book that I looked at and was actually, was fun to read. And he made it seem such a cliche now, but he was the first person that did make food seem a bit sexy. And at the time, you know, as a teenager, reading his words about how there's nothing, I he says something like, there's nothing better than the pleasure of a hot salty chip eaten from fingers, especially if they're someone else's. And I was like, <laughs> who are, Nigel? And just the whole, the food is great. Um, the garlic bread recipe in that book is never better Oh, really? It's just, oh my God, make it for every single party that I have. People, it's so good that people have been known to tuck into it, both so hot from the oven that they've started crying. <laughs> and also once I found someone eating one that hadn't been baked yet. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> oh little in the party. <laughs> but honestly, it's got Parmesan in it. It is super super delicious if that's not a recommendation i don't know what Well, is. the recipe in um there's i think there's a garlic bread recipe in completely perfect and it's based on that so okay. it's an homage to nigel so real food nigel slater just perfect delicious
0: we're on to the final seventh desert island dish and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island
1: um it's trifle mm-hmm. i love trifle i love trifle in all its incarnations i love those little supermarket trifles you get with jelly, even though I'm anti jelly in general. I know this divides people. But I will I will eat a supermarket trifle with jelly. <laughs> forced. Um I love my sister's mother in law who comes for, for Christmas with us sometimes, brings Nigella's chocolate trifle with blueberries and amaretto. Ooh. Love that. But most of all, I love my granny's trifle that my mum also makes and now I make. It's just so simple. It's tinned raspberries, it's boudoir biscuits, it's sweet cherry. And quite a lot of sweet cherry. And then just a really thick layer of bird's custard. I think now my mum would probably put some fancier custard on, but I still stick with bird's. Yeah. It sets very well. (laughs) Um, And then a layer of whipped cream and some almonds. And it just, I know... I. I just love it. It's just such comfort food for me. Maybe we can have a trifle banquet and just have all the sort of variations. (laughs) It's a joke about a trifle bazaar there that I'm trying to remember, but yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that sounds completely delicious. Listy Cloak, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you. Perfect. You know you've made a good garlic bread if someone's tucking into it before you've even cooked it. And I would love to know where you lot stand on melon ballers not saying they're an essential piece of kitchen kit but who doesn't love little tiny balls of melon (laughs) and here ends another delicious day of desert island dishes if you're listening and you haven't yet left a review now's your chance it really is quick to do and it really does help You can find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura and you can visit the website desertislanddishes.co where there's a full list of episodes plus lots of different recipes and loads of other things to explore on there. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.